Alhamdulillah. Doing just fine. How are you doing, Shay? I'm doing great and whatnot. I was making wudu when you called. I couldn't answer your phone the first time. Just uh, But let's get started. Alhamdulillah. Let's get started. Go ahead. Bismillah. All right. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. This is the explanation of the poem outlining fiqh. And we are in the second major part of fiqh, which is business transactions. And this is the subchapter of buyur, or business transactions, buying and selling. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The poem goes like this. Al-bay'ur means to buy and sell, and business transactions have rules as well. Ten specifics are defined. Conditions we must bear in mind, options, interest, roots, and fruit, because bad transactions don't compute. Advanced payments we pawn and make, collateral debt with loans we take, our words, our bonds, we're bound to keep, a debt transfer when ends don't meet, patents, copy, residual rights, all help merchants sleep at night. And this is the the text we are going through in support of this is a summary of Islamic jurisprudence by Sheikh Salih Fozan. We are on chapter now, five. Okay, so just to make it clear... We're using Sheikh Falzan's explanation because this text, actually this, this the book outlining fiqh was written before Sheikh Falzan's book was um, put out to the public. So it wasn't written with Sheikh Falzan's book in mind. But after it came out, after Sheikh Falzan's book came out, I read it. And I saw that it had some very excellent explanations and outlining fiqh is written in an apolitical way that follows the order of mainly the Shafi'i Madhab, but written in a way that all the Madhab would be able to be used outlining fiqh as an outline. Because it's, it doesn't go into one madhab's explanation. Okay? It puts the, the general outline of what all the fuqaha have said, what the issues are in that. So, alhamdulillah, uh, we're using that. The, the actual book that was written, that was, was used as the first explanation was Al-Wajiz by Sheikh Abdullahim Bedoui. And that, book was uh, the first and the only book written in English at the time that was also written in what they called a Salafi way. At that time, the, the people who were attempting to follow the Salaf were not in any one particular madhab. You couldn't put them in one madhab. You had people from the Hanafi, the Maliki, the, 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 the Hanbali, and the Shafi'i. Now that have all saying we're following the Salaf, how can we follow? What can we look at? And Sheikh Abdullah bin Bedoui wrote his book, Al-Wajiz, which is a summary of all the fiqh. And so we were using that as an explanation. So, Alhamdulillah, let's go ahead, please. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, chapter 5. This is page 47 of the PDF and page 31 of the book. Disposal of a purchased commodity before receipt and rescinding of bargains. In this chapter, Allah willing, we will deal with the rulings on the lawful disposal of a purchased commodity before receiving it. 
We will also illustrate how the bargain is legally concluded and when it becomes illegal. One should be aware that it is invalid to sell a purchased commodity before receiving it, whether it is measured, weighed, counted, or measured by cubit, as the imams agree. The same ruling applies to other kinds of commodities according to the preponderant view of the Muslim scholars. May Allah have mercy on them. Okay, so what we're talking about prophet. is that, that the person cannot sell something they don't own, haven't seen. Okay? They don't own, haven't seen. It's not in their possession. Yeah. Continue. Even if they know its weight and those other... No. The Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Yes, sir. He who buys a foodstuff should not sell it until he has received it with exact full measure, as compiled by al-Bukhari and Muslim. In another narration, it reads, until he has received it. In Muslim's narration, it states, until he has weighed it. Ibn Abbas, may Allah be pleased with him, said, I consider that this that the same ruling of foodstuffs is applied to all types of sales. This ruling is directly stated in the Sunnah prophetic tradition. Imam Ahmed related that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said what may what may mean when you buy something you should not sell it until you have completely received it. Moreover Abu Dawood related the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam forbade selling of goods where they are bought until the tradesmen take them to their houses. Their houses here means it means their storehouses, their storage houses. Okay? And other businessmen would take a product. I used to you know, growing up in New York I would see how some some businessmen would treat their trade. They would take one of them or a few of them and they would literally take them home. If it was a toy, they would give it to their children and see what their children said about the toy and let them play with it. If it was something else, they would give it to their wives and ask their wives to look at it and inspect it. It was as if they were getting experts' you know, opinions and, 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 and views on the item. And I saw lots of men, before they would sell a particular item, uh, ask their wives about their item. And I began to hold that if a man purchased something and he didn't ask his wife, we're talking about a, a tradesman, a businessman, and he didn't ask his wife about it, I, I started to believe that that was a deficiency because I saw so many New York trades, businessmen make deals and then literally ask their wives before they concluded the deals or even ordered certain types of things for their opinions. So when you hear this narration that they forbade him, that the Prophet ﷺ forbade the selling of goods where they are bought until the tradesmen take them to their houses. And then you find that a majority of the, the ulama say this is regarding their storage houses. Why? So I have possession of it. I can see what it is. If it's food stuff or it's not, now it's mine and it's not someone else's, you know, and Allahu A'lam.
Go ahead, please. Sheikh al-Islam. Or did somebody say something? Dr. Maisha, did you, were you going to say, ask the question? But yeah, she had a question. Is this only in, in, in terms of food stuffs? Because my question is, you can't do pre-sales? Like, you know what I mean? Like pre-orders? That's not, you asked the question and then you gave another a statement. The question is, is this only regarding foodstuffs? No. Okay. As you find that Ibn Abbas, what did he say? May Allah be pleased with him and his father. I consider the same ruling that we're using for foodstuffs is applied to all types of sales. Okay. And then you have the second narration from Imam Ahmed. He says, when you buy something, something is a general term. It's not restricted. Okay? And then you have the third one from Abu Dawood, which says he forbade the selling of goods. Okay? So all these terms are general. Only one of them that has been presented is that the statement is of foodstuffs. So this is why we say we have to take the stance of the Salaf, the Sahaba, the Tabi'in. With regards to things that may be controversial or ambiguous, as far as pre-sale concern, pre-sales can only be on items that you've already previously had from a particular seller. Okay, so as we covered in the last uh, class, let's say I sell pencils. Okay. And I get my pencils from whatever, the yellow pencil company. And I'm accustomed to getting my pencils from the yellow pencil company. And I sell them. I receive them and I sell them. Then the, the Internet changes and my supplier, the yellow pencil company, says we will direct ship for you. A drop ship for you or something like that. And I say, okay, cool. This is allowed because I've received this product. I know what the product is. I know what sizes and everything, and I have palpated it. Now they are selling the product, my product, to my customers. And let's say, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I'm coming. I'm, I'm getting a new pencil, and I'm saying, okay, it's going to be a little bit longer. I've already seen the prototype of this pencil. Exactly what they're going to send for me. I've already seen samples of this product. And I say, okay, when they finish, well, I send them to you. I'm going to direct send them to you. I can pre-sell. Now, if they run out and then they, I have to get it from another supplier or they sell me a new one that I haven't seen yet and the quality is not the same or it's not the one that we agreed upon, then, as we said in the other one, not only they, but I have to make another exchange with my customers and say, well, this is not the normal pen that I sell. Okay? It's not the quality they're expecting. So then I have to make a different price with them or compensate them. And I have to get compensated. I have the right to get compensated from the company who sold me a different pen than we agreed upon. Does that make sense? And this isn't the case also will affect my presets. Okay, so yes, I get, okay, so there's certain medications that I um, get in the in my clinic pharmacy 
and they're very expensive. I don't want to purchase those until I know that the the, the patient is really going to get it from me. Is that wrong? To make to, to collect that payment before I order the medication? I don't know in the case of medications if this is the same thing. Because in the medications, you've already experienced as a doctor what the different medications are like. And you already know how the different brands affect different people. Okay, we know that certain, uh, even certain companies which are, I don't use, my personally, I don't use any of the Indian medications that come out of India. And a large percentage of medications come out of India from America or from the United States. But there are different ones that come from different places. Anyone who is involved in medicine knows the details of the medications, specific medications that they order, their side effects and the companies that sell them, and if there's a difference in the companies. This is what's necessary, and this is the objective of the rule here, to know what you're selling them. It's quality, not just from a theoretic perspective, but from a an active perspective. So to include medications in here, uh, no, I wouldn't consider that the same thing here, okay? For a doctor or a person who is actively involved in the, dealing with medicines. For someone who is not actively involved in medications, then I would find this to be a, a wrong action from them, okay? And the law is best. Or it would be difficult, it would be different for a company that is wholesaling these things to like a pharmacy or something like that, because then it becomes the same thing. They don't have possession of a, a, a commodity and they're selling it and they're receiving money. And the thing to avoid here for wholesalers who are selling this is that they're taking money for something they don't own, using that money to buy the particular product and then selling it to the for then passing it on to the other person for profit. And this is uh, an illegal activity in Islam. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So you said no, no, I can't. I can't hold hold on. I don't want to hold on to the same issue while we're still learning the, the whole the generality of the rule. Let's listen to the whole okay. self, right. and then we'll okay. we'll come back to the big instances of this. Go ahead, start again, Mr. Tyler Boyd. So we get context. Start again with the hadith. Okay. Start off. One no. should be aware. I want you to read all the way through, through what Ibn Taymiyyah says, okay? Bismillah. Naam. <clears throat> Moreover, Abu Dawood related, no, the messenger no, no, of no. Allah. One should be aware of it, that it is invalid to sell. Okay. One should be aware that it is invalid to sell a purchased commodity before receiving it, whether it is measured, weighed, counted, or measured by cubit, as the imams agree. The same ruling applies to other kinds of commodities according to the preponderant view of the Muslim scholars. 
may Allah have mercy on them. For the Prophet wasallam said what, what translated means, He who buys a foodstuff should not sell it until he has received it with exact full measure, as compiled by al-Bukhari and Muslim. In another narration, it reads, until he has received it. In Muslim's narration, it states, until he has weighed it. Ibn Abbas, may Allah be pleased with him, said, I consider that the same ruling of foodstuffs is applied to all types of sales. This ruling is directly stated in the Sunnah, prophetic tradition. Imam Ahmed related that the Prophet ﷺ said, What may mean, when you buy something, you should not sell it until you have completely received it. Moreover, Abu Dawood related, The Messenger of Allah ﷺ forbade selling, of the, selling the goods where they are bought until the tradesmen take them to their houses. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and his student Ibn al-Qayyim, may Allah have mercy on them, stated, The cause behind prohibiting the buyer to sell a commodity until he has completely received it is the second buyer's inability to receive the commodity. The original seller may not deliver the commodity to the first buyer, especially when the former sees the expected profit of the buyer after selling the same commodity to another person. In this case, the original seller may do his best to cancel the deal, whether through rescinding or swindling. This, this ruling is further confirmed by the prophetic prohibition of making profit through what is not in one's possession. Accordingly, Muslims must adhere to the aforementioned transactional legal rulings. When a Muslim buys a commodity, he is not permitted to sell it until he has fully received it. However, many people are negligent in this regard as they buy goods and sell them before they receive them, or when they receive only part of them, and this is not a legal receipt of the goods. For example, a buyer may count sacks, parcels, or boxes in the store of the seller, and then sell them to another person, which is not considered a legal receipt of the goods, that enables the buyer to sell them. Some may ask, what is then the legal receipt that enables the buyer to have disposal of the purchased commodity? The answer is that the legal receipt of goods differs according to their kinds. Okay, Every this kind had. This is one of the points I wanted to make in reference to the statement or the question that. Dr. Maisha posed that there's no one rule or, or or application here because there's no one commodity or type of business. But what is prohibited is two things. Selling something you don't own, you've never seen it before, you haven't weighed, you don't know what it is. Only theoretically. And even if receiving it and it stays in its box, you haven't opened it up. You don't know what it looks like. Okay? And then passing it on to someone else. Continue. No. Some, some may ask, what is then the legal receipt that enables the buyer to have disposal of the purchased commodity? Answer is. 
The answer is that the legal receipt of goods differs according to their kinds. Every kind has its own valid receipt. If the goods are measured, weighed, counted, or measured by cubit, their valid receipt must be through measuring, weighing, counting, or measuring by cubit, respectively. Provided the goods are taken to a place belonging to the buyer. If the goods are clothes, animals, cars, or the like, their valid receipt is fulfilled by taking them to a place belonging to the buyer. If the goods can be delivered by hand, such as jewels, books, and the, and the like, their valid receipt is fulfilled by the buyer's actual possession of them. Yet, if what is purchased cannot be moved to deliver, such as houses, lands, or fruit on trees, its valid receipt is fulfilled by handing it over to the buyer to be at his disposal as its new owner. By, by, by giving its key, you missed the point. And the valid receipt of a house or those things, it, it, meaning that you have to give them a receipt. Okay? No. So, when you hand it over to the person, how do you hand over land? How do you hand over land to a person? How do you hand over free, fruit trees to a person? You give them a piece of paper declaring that it's theirs, showing that they, own, they possess it. Go ahead. No. The valid receipt of a house or the like is fulfilled by giving its key to the buyer and handing him over the property as a new owner. Again, this is giving them, show, giving them some type of paperwork as well that shows the ownership of an immovable, immovable object. We had the same type of issue when I lived in Turkey because at the time I was living in Turkey, even if you bought a tree, it was considered buying property in Turkey, and that was sufficient to work towards your immigration, your your, your residency. So you, you buy a piece of property that just was the size of a tree. How did you show proof that you owned it? Okay, <laughs> you had a picture of the tree you had, which was tied to the paperwork saying that you own the tree and the plot of land that you had that tree on. Go ahead and continue. Yes, sir. We have already mentioned some hadiths prohibiting a Muslim to sell goods if he has not validly and fully received them from the seller. This ruling serves the interests of both the buyer and the seller and prevents controversies and disputes resulting from the remissness of the buyer and seller when the former receives the goods from the latter or when the buyer neither checks the commodity nor verifies its quality and specifications before exempting the seller from liability. A Muslim must adhere to and carry out the aforementioned rulings while concluding business deals. Again, this, the responsibility of the buyer, the wholesale buyer, this is what we're referring to. We're talking about the wholesale buyer when he says the buyer. And then he's, he's buying it and selling it at the same time. And we have to think in big cases here. When he buys it, he has to check it. Okay? It's quality control because now it's his reputation is on the line. His responsibility and accountability. Then he can sell it to the retailer. Also, it's a protection from him from his connect cutting his throat and going directly to uh, the retailer. 
And this teaches us not to tell our wholesaler how much we're selling his products for. Okay? Continue. However, many people today are remiss in the valid receipt of the goods they purchase, committing what has been prohibited by the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And thus they suffer controversies and disputes. Sometimes the buyer regrets when he discovers the actual specifications of the goods after concluding the deal. And then he cannot cancel the deal except through long arguments and disputes. Whoever violates the orders of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, must regret and suffer consequences in the end. Among the transactional acts that have been stressed and highly recommended by the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is that either of the contractual parties is to rescind the bargain if he regrets concluding the sale, does not need the commodity anymore, or is unable to pay its price. He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, what may mean, who Whoever accepts the demand of a Muslim to rescind a bargain, Allah will rescind his faults on the day of resurrection. Rescinding the bargain means to cancel it, giving each of the seller and buyer his due right. Among the duties of a Muslim towards his fellow Muslim brother is to agree to rescind the bargain when the latter needs that urgently. This is a sign of gentleness and good treatment, as well as one of the requirements of brotherliness and fellowship in Islam. Okay, so let's go back a little bit. The Prophet said, whoever accepts the demand of a Muslim to rescind the deal. Okay, so I, I think you said the word bargain, but we're talking about the deal. It may not be a bargain. I think that's a bad translation. Person A has made a deal with person B. Person B decides, I do not want to go further with this, but he's already committed. So because he's committed, his word is his bond. But he explains to person A, I do not want to continue. And person A says, no problem, no problem. I'll take my product back or I'll drop it. And I will not make a big issue about this. I'll keep my product and sell to someone else. Inshallah ta'ala. When they say, Hadul khair, you hear that sometimes when Muslims are doing it, they say, okay, this good going to be here anyway. I'll take this and, and bi'ithnillah, by me not giving you a hard time, Allah will open up the door and give me another uh, customer in another way. And then that person, the reward he gets is that Allah will overlook and, and not, you know, hold him accountable but the faults that he makes, the mistakes that he makes when he's resurrected Yom Al-Qiyam. What I have seen just recently, maybe a month ago, was it a month ago? Let's say a month and a half ago, I was here in Mecca and a businessman called me into a problem he was having with another person. So the issue was the person was a Hajji provider. He provides access to Hajj and Umrah. And his customer was an American, a, an Americanized, can I say an Americanized? A Philistine man who had gotten American citizenship. Okay? Who had purchased from him 
two tickets or three tickets. Let's say two because I remember the problem with two of the tickets. One for himself and one for his mother, who was a Philistine woman. Okay. Now, his mother was not an American citizen. So there's a rule. I don't know if people know this or not. Saudi Arabia does not give Palestinians visas for Umrah or Hajj via the Internet like everyone else. Nor do they give them uh, the visa for entry to Hajj or Umrah when they land in the airport. They have to go to a Saudi directly, physically into a Saudi embassy somewhere in the world in order to get their visa. Now, this man did not know this. The provider is not responsible for that. Okay, He has it in his contract. I'm not responsible. He's getting what he called visas from pretty much everywhere in the world. But if there's complications with your visa beyond his control, he's not responsible for that. Okay. And he has that in the contract. The, the Philistine guy didn't think there was an issue because he's an American. So, as you know, they flew to him, his wife, I mean, sorry, him and his mother. They flew with this company to Saudi Arabia, got to the airport, were going through customs, and they said, hold on, you are not an American. You may have a visa to the United States, but you're not an American. You can't come in here without going back to Palestine or some other place and getting a visa directly from an air, from a, uh, an embassy. So the man said, I'm not going to go in if my mother can't go in. Okay? My mother can't come in. I'm not going in. And he, they, they flew them both back to the United States. He tells the man now, he calls, he's the other guy's, the company is in Saudi Arabia. He calls and says, listen, I want my money back. I want all my money back for the entire Umrah trip and everything like that. And the guy says, well, it's not my fault. I didn't, you know, I'm the, I did everything I was supposed to. And, you know, I even told you that I couldn't get the visa for your mother. And you said, well, well, we'll figure it out when we get there because, you know, you figured it would be something at the airport. I don't care. I want my money back. Okay. I want to, I want out of this deal. So the man called me in and said, do I have to give him his money back? You know, he called me in. I spoke to the man. I hear one side. I hear the other side. I said, no. Okay. You, you know, you, it would be nice if you did, but you showed the man where it said that it's not your responsibility to get the visa. He acknowledges that, but he's saying, hey, and he was able to come, but his mother was not. He said, no, you know, I agree with that. He told me that. But I couldn't come. He should give me my money back. So the owner of the company said, I just want to prove that it's not I'm not obliged to do this. I agreed with him. I sided with him and made the decision on his side. He then said, but I'm going to give you all the money back. He gave all the money back for the entire thing and took whatever losses that he had because he had already Book the rooms and things, everything like that. 
He was here for 10 days. Before the 10 days was over, the guy called him back, the Palestinian guy called him back and said, since you were so kind to me and, you know, worked with me and gave me anything back, I have a group of people here who are my friends and they want to make a trip. It was like 20 something people. Okay. The guy tells me, the, the, the guy called me and told me, Hey, remember that guy that was upset and wanted his money back? And then I, I gave him his money back. I said, yeah. He just called me. I made a deal with a bunch of his friends to take them on a Hodge trip, I made an Umrah trip, and I have made $20,000 just on that particular deal. Okay? So here this guy, he lost whatever money he lost on the two, the trip for the mother and his son, her son. But behind just being gentle and say, okay, whatever, you can go. Less than 10 days later, or after, I would say approximately 10 days later, the same guy brings him a deal that makes him $20,000. I say that this hadith is only the hadith where whoever accepts the demand of his Muslim brother to rescind a bargain, that the reward of it is not just on Yom Al-Qiyamah, that he will get a reward in this dunya as well. Either like we just saw or through some other source. And Allah knows best. I just want to share that with you, an actual case in action. Alhamdulillah. Yes. Where were we? Rescinding the bargain. Riba. No, we finished that. 